0: The Prime Minister of uh, Hungary, uh, Victor Obron, uh, he has said that NATO now needs to start pushing for peace. Uh, Many of the top nations have balked at his comments. Do you think it's because these NATO leaders believe um, that going for peace would be seen as weakness or worse as a loss? or what it, what is the reason to to keep pushing at this point i think the
1: leadership in paris berlin and london as examples uh, is at least as remote from reality as the biden administration is the these are you know this is your globalist elite the people that believe in a world that doesn't exist they think they're fighting uh, russia because russia is a nationalist state they have a national identity, a national language, a national culture. Ergo, we have to destroy it. Remember, these are the people that have been inviting millions from the Middle East and Africa into Europe. Uh, they have—they have been welcoming every single potential danger to their society as a, a returning faith, as something good. In other words, they want to do to Russia what they've already done to Europe, which is severely weaken the place. Look at the economic policies. catastrophic. You know the Germans just shut down their last nuclear power plant. Well, no matter how much you may not like nuclear power, before you shut all of your plants down, you should have some alternative that works. No, they're shutting everything down and they're, the alternatives don't work. I mean, if you think you're going to su- su- you know survive on wind turbines, you've lost your mind. And the lifeblood of all civilizations and successful scientific industrial development is cheap energy. You got to have it. So they they've essentially robbed themselves of dec- decades of positive growth and impoverished themselves. This is the elite that thinks it's right and refuses under any circumstances to accept anything else. So they look at what's happening and they say, "Well, the Russians still haven't moved much further now than they were a few months ago." In other words, the Russians control about 23-24% of Ukrainian territory. The Russians have never cared about the territory. They care about destroying Ukrainian forces and killing them. They want to demilitarize and quote-unquote denazify Ukraine. Well, if the Ukrainians are coming to them repeatedly in vast numbers and allowing themselves to be killed, you don't move very much. When that ends, they'll move maybe then these people in Western Europe will wake up. But, you know, I kind of doubt it. I think they're going to have to be thrown out of office. And if the Europeans don't throw them out, it could be the death of Europe. These people are a catastrophe. They're a disaster. Britain is in just as much, if not more serious trouble. So <clears throat> to answer your question, you know, you're it's an ideological problem. In other words, if you think that you're going to extend with force of arms... The LGBTQRSW, whatever agenda to Russia that refuses to uh, ab- absorb and adopt your quote unquote new values instead says, no, we're an Orthodox Christian country. We think there are two genders, men and women. And oh, by the way, we don't marry women to women and men to men. Oh, well, obviously they're committing a terrible sin. They deserve to be destroyed. Uh, this is a hopeless endeavor. That's not going to end. In fact, I think the tide of, of opinion and attitude is actually swinging in, in Russia's favor in Europe. As more and more people look at the, I don't want to say catastrophic, but certainly fragile quality of their civilization and culture, Russia is pointing to it in a different direction and is going to gain, I think, a, a lot of momentum as a result. I think ultimately the globalists, and their neocon friends, who seem to have all sorts of other personal reasons for hating Russia, are, are on the losing side. But again, they have to, it has to be demonstrated clearly, unambiguously for them to admit anything. And even then, they'll probably crawl back under their rocks and wait for the next opportunity. I mean, I grew up during the Vietnam War. And when that thing ended, I could not conceive of any future for the United States in which we repeated the utter fallacy and, if, folly and stupidity of Vietnam. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry, but there was no vital strategic interest for the United States in Southeast Asia. In fact, a smart strategist would have stood back and said, well, you know, if the Chinese decide to invade the place, that could be good. They'll overreach. You know, this is what people don't understand. If you go back through history and you look and all the sort of of great men of history, whether they're bad or good, doesn't matter. Inevitably, the problem you have is that everybody overreaches. The French overreached, the Spaniards overreached, the British ultimately overreached. We are overreaching. Everyone overreaches. Remember, Einstein said, uh, he defined genius as knowing when to stop. Einstein was right. These people don't get it. They don't know when to stop. So it's going to come back to haunt them. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And I think the economics at home, and I'm sure you've had other people on, but people really need to listen to this James Ricards. Uh, he He's absolutely spot on. He's not the only one. There are other sober-minded people out there. The only difference I have with the the cash and gold crowd is that I think Bitcoin and digital currency – is going to eventually move in and become an enormously important store of value. I don't think it's a temporary phenomenon at all. I think it's a very attractive future for those of us who believe in freedom, because if you want to be free, then you want to be out from underneath the banks.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of money, um, I asked this to Colonel Tony Schaefer because I've had so many people ask me, why, why does the United States military budget, why is it over $800 billion? Where where does that money go? If we're so far behind on equipment and uh, munitions and, and things like that, is it just all of the military bases spread across the globe? Or where, where does $800 billion go?
1: Well, it's actually more than $800 billion now, as you know. In fact, if you... Go into the black budget and intelligence, you're over, way over a trillion. And I've always said it's a mistake to look at the defense budget in isolation from the others. Uh, there are several things that need to be understood for, for a very long time, certainly beginning in the 1960s, Americans were persuaded that if you spent a lot of money on defense, you got lots of defense. Now let me explain that. In other words, money in equals capability out. That's never been true. All through the twenties and, and the early thirties, really up until about 1938, the British and the French grossly outspent the Germans. German de- defense spending did not really begin to rise precipitously until 1938, 39 in, in the run up to uh, the, the war in France and, and Britain. So you can spend lots of money and not, and get not very much for your investment. And I, that's a big problem for us. Why? Well, you've got a lot of people on the Hill that think their job is one one and only one thing, spend money. If I were to walk you around the House of Representatives in particular, and I think to a large extent the Senate as well, everybody would tell you, listen, uh, you, know, you know, you've got to understand something. Our job here is to spend money. <laughs> That's our job. If we don't spend money, then we don't have a job. Well, that's also tied to re-election and sustaining uh, investments in places and things that benefit your constituents also involves spending heavily to benefit your donors. And I like to say that we really have donor government now. You go back to Ralph Nader all through the 90s, he was trying to tell everybody, you know, Washington's occupied territory, the corporations own everything. Well, I would tell you I would say right now the donors govern your country. You know, you have open borders. Is that because we all voted on a referendum to open our borders and admit anybody who wants to come in? Of course not. But donors want to do that. Some of those people are involved with the Chamber of Commerce, some of those are in industries. They want cheap labor. Some of it has to do with corruption and the drug trade and illegal human trafficking, I'm sure all of those things so what I'm trying to get across is that the the notion that you're spending explicitly for a military capability is false. And there's here's something else that most viewers just don't get. They don't understand this. We have right now on active duty, 44 four stars, army, Navy, air force, and Marine 44 for a force of less than 1.1 million. And by the way, As you all know, we're having trouble recruiting uh, and have had it for quite a while. So during World War II, we had 12.2 million men in uniform at the height of the war. And when we were at 12.2 million, we had seven four-stars. I mean, I can name them for you. Marshall, MacArthur, Eisenhower, Arnold, King, Nimitz, and I think King Nimitz and Leahy. Leahy. Those seven. That's it. Now, how could we possibly have fought a major war successfully without the help of all those dozens of four stars that we now have? Well, look, this is, this is part of the rot, the corruption, the waste. The whole department is a catastrophe. You can't even audit it. You know you you read the recent uh, headline, oh we found 3 billion dollars that we can ship to Ukraine. Well, the 3 billion aren't going to Ukraine. Some cash will go over there. That does because you got to pay the government, pay the Ukrainian army, pay for those kinds of things. But most of it just goes from <clears throat> Congress, at least on paper, to the Department of Defense and that of course goes through the Treasury. And then from the Department of Defense, it's recycled back into the defense industries and various contractors. Then it shows up again in uh, the form of donations to political action committees and re-election campaigns and so forth on the Hill. If you want to know why people come to Washington as a sort of average middle class people and then 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later come out as multimillionaires, there's a reason. Uh, we did not create a government that was designed to enrich the people that participate in it. Far from it, but that's what we've got. So you can make a lot of money in Washington, D.C., in government if you're on the right subcommittee, if you have the right donors, if you do the right things. How many times have you heard, well, I'm sorry, I, I'd like to vote for for what you want me to vote for, but I can't do it. Well, why can't you do it? Well, I you know, I I won't get reelected. Well, what do you mean you won't be reelected? Well, my donors will support my opponent because I have taken a position they don't like and I'll be replaced. That's a hell of a government. You know, it really is. It's a marvelous invention that doesn't make any sense. So our, our 18th century construct from the 1780s really doesn't work. That's the other revelation that has not yet sunk in. Everybody talks about, oh, the Constitution, the Constitution, let me tell you, the Bill of Rights is vastly more important. The mechanics of government that we're using today were fine in the late 1700s and probably up until the Civil War. But since then, they've made no sense. I mean, just look at your 50-state construct. Boy, isn't it helpful to have all those states that that all have these powers and authorities that can uh, obstruct, stop whatever you want to do if it's important? or would we be better off with a nation of say five regions and consolidate a lot of that government and reduce it in size i mean there are a lot of things that have to be done but nothing is going to happen i think until there's an enormous economic downturn and a financial crisis then we'll begin to see evidence for that and that goes for foreign policy and domestic policy you shouldn't see them as totally totally distinct from each other because they're they're not
0: yeah a herding wallet makes people behave differently. Um, you know I you know there's all this talk about central bank digital currency and and bitcoin. i I own Bitcoin. Um, I don't know that the government really wants Bitcoin to take off because it would force them to be honest. I don't think we would be able to have these dark pools of military money and and all of this because there would be a track record of where that money is going in Washington, D.C., and I, I'm guessing that terrifies them. Oh, listen, I think you're 100% spot on. By the way, there, I
1: remember when this this whole business got started with uh, the so-called volunteer armed forces. I never considered myself a volunteer. I'm a professional soldier, and so I, I really dislike the notion of being some volunteer, So though I just show up when there's a fire, and otherwise I go about my business. I think... I think the alternative is, is as follows. Uh, the Bitcoin and the digital currency is a promise of freedom from government intrusion, control, and influence. And that influence is obviously linked to the banking system, the financial system. I'm for almost anything that gets the government out of my life as much as possible. But there's another thing. When this volunteer armed forces got started, people said privately, this is a good thing. Because now we can do whatever we want with the armed forces. Nobody will pay any attention because we don't have a draft. Now, I have never been a big advocate for the draft in the past. Uh, that may have to change in the future. I don't know. But, you know, I, I've never liked it. And I, I saw the tail end of the draft and the people that were drafted, and they were very miserable and unhappy. And I saw what began to be the foundation for a professional force in the 80s. And that got much better. It was still not, strictly speaking, a a real professional force. The most professional people, though, were at the lowest levels. The least professional were at the top. That's still the case, I think, because there's really no compulsion to study your profession. Nobody cares about that. And if you think any of the people that are running the show right now in uniform in the Department of Defense are there because they're just – you know, the best possible soldiers, sailors, airmen, or marines that you could ever have, you've lost your mind. They're there because they've been put through a political ringer. Certainly over the last 30 years, especially over the last 21, 22, anyone who did not willingly conform, anyone who did not mindlessly embrace whatever dumb ideas and policies came their way was invited to leave. People say, well, that's civilian control of the military. No, that's civilian destruction of the military. There's a big difference. Anyone who understands the military understands there are limits to influence on both sides, military and civilian. And what is properly the purview of professional soldiers is not necessarily something for debate by members of the Senate and the House who have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. You might just as well convene a a committee on the Hill to discuss the manufacture of microcircuitry and ask them to comment on you know, how we should approach it and how much money should be invested. They don't know. We, we have lots of people that don't know, but they make these decisions and influence outcomes. We can't go on like this. So this whole governmental structure, I think, is in trouble. And maybe if there's anything good happening right now, maybe it'll turn us down a different road so that we can reassess the way we do business. But right now... The biggest danger I see is that this crowd in Washington does not understand how dangerous the situation with Russia really is. They just don't. And they continue to grossly underestimate the Russian government, its leadership, and the Russian people. You can't do that. And in the meantime, they are, they are on the bridge of the financial economic version of the Titanic. And uh, their view is, uh, the iceberg that we hit back there a few kilometers ago, minor consideration, don't worry about it. And I don't think that they're going to wise up until the the waves lap over the decks and reach the bridge.
0: Over the weekend, President Biden confirmed to Ukraine and the other G7 nations that the United States would be offering F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. How wise or dangerous is this move?
1: Well, you've <clears throat> your viewers naturally have seen uh, the president state initially what he would not send and then subsequently backtrack down the line and say, you know, I will send it. I think that we're seeing this happen again with the uh, fourth generation aircraft, you know, the F-16. The truth of the matter is the reason he keeps backtracking is that things in Ukraine get worse. Ukrainians are losing more soldiers. Uh, their infrastructure is being destroyed. Uh, they're, in, they're in very bad shape. And so under the circumstances, which you refused to send previously, you you now send as a matter of desperation. The problem with the F-16 is twofold. First of all, I, I don't know how many people they're going to find to fly this anytime soon. Now, the, what has always concerned me and should concern Americans is the predisposition to put American pilots into those aircraft and fly them in support of the Ukrainians. Now, undoubtedly, that would be a question of calling for volunteers or bringing someone who's recently retired back to do it. The problem with that is that these are then mercenaries, and they are not covered under the Geneva Convention. In other words, they're simply fighters for hire, uh, and that's a serious problem. What do you What do you do if you lose one of these aircraft? And then finally, uh, I think as things get worse, and they're they're very bad now, and they're only going to get worse. We're back to the temptation to find ways to intervene in Western Ukraine. As it becomes clear, this U- Ukrainian state apparatus is collapsing. And remember, we own it. We, we pay for everything. We own the government. We're keeping the economy going. We're paying the troops, the, the bureaucrats, everything. So what? once that weakens, I mean, the whole thing is going to fall like a house of cards. So I I worry that someone will say, well, let's go in. You know, with our own forces, the Russians wouldn't dare to challenge us. And, and of course, they're wrong. I think for many Russians who are extremely angry with us and the terrible damage that, that we have caused them by turning Ukraine into this platform for attack against Russia, uh, they would welcome the opportunity to crush uh, any U.S. forces that intervened or for that matter, any NATO forces that did. So I hope hope we put that out of our minds. But I worry about that.
0: Would would that be uh, like a, a coalition of nations, or specifically like Poland, or who who do you think might make a move, and and could they justify like Poland saying, hey, this used to be our territory anyway, we're kind of just taking it back now that Ukraine can't stand on its own two legs.
1: Well, you know, everybody in Eastern Europe can make that assertion and uh, have some credibility. I and mean, if you go to this thing they call Kaliningrad, which is the, the very corner of East Prussia, uh that was German from about 1220 onwards. So you're talking, what, 800, 850 years nonstop German. It's now part of Russia, thanks to FDR. Stalin, as his armies moved west, said, hey, you know, uh we'd we'd really like to have that port in the Baltic. Do you, do you have any objections? And FDR said, no, of course not, Joe. Take it. Yeah, so now we have Russians sitting there where no one in their right mind wanted them. But uh, the the bottom line is that, sure, you can always find the Hungarians, the Poles, any numbers of people that have controlled territory that's now under somebody else's authority. So that's part of it. But I think the bigger issue is this. Whenever we go anywhere, we always go as a, quote-unquote, coalition. We have that as the fig fig leaf of legitimacy. But the truth is that other than the Poles, maybe some Romanians, although I have my doubts, uh and maybe a few Brits, the United States is going to be on its own if it goes into Western Ukraine. Now, it could be some of the Lithuanians want to go along. I don't know. That could be. But even in Poland, the enthusiasm for this fiasco is waning. The most recent polling data says that the Poles are tired of being overwhelmed by Ukrainian refugees. They, they're openly talking about the ukrainianization of their country which they dislike intensely and the polish chief of staff has said look the russians are not incompetent they're tough soldiers they're very competent they know what they're doing so i i see evidence that people are sobering up uh the question is will we sober up and i don't see any evidence for it Just, just as you have people that absolutely refuse in washington to believe that there, there could be a, a serious economic turndown. In other words, that there is a cost associated with money printing and uh, tightening credit and raising, rising interest rates. You can also find lots of people in Washington say, oh, you know, the Russians are nothing. We're everything. We're, we're invincible and vulnerable. Uh, it's, it's very dangerous. So I, I see that here. I don't know how deeply that runs, but, uh, you know, if you looked at some of the more recent articles that have come out, there's a lot of evidence that, uh, what I would call common sense and re- reality, those things don't really intrude very much at the highest levels of the Biden administration.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, if Europe doesn't make a move, uh, we sure know that Wall Street is going to make a move. BlackRock is already meeting with Zelensky and talking about how they can, uh, you know, revitalize, bring life back and, yeah. how there's just so much money to be made. And I just, I find it disgusting how, you know, they, they look at this as just such a great money-making opportunity when there's human life on the line. Well, remember the people that you're talking about here in Washington
1: or the, the finance, financiers in Europe and the United States, uh, whether it's Soros or Larry Fink at BlackRock, they're not interested in Ukrainians, they could care less. They they have been very hopeful that Russia could be destroyed so that they could strip Russia of its resources. Remember, you're talking about an area from sort of the middle of Ukraine all the way to uh, Kamchatka, the peninsula, that is full of extraordinary resources. Everything from gold mines to uh, extraordinarily rare minerals and rare earths and uh, endless quantities of fresh water you know wonderful soil an abundance of food we I mean, could go on and on and on so i think that's really been behind much of what we see in this sort of proxy war waged against russia now i don't see any evidence that russia is going to collapse and and i think putin will probably be president long after biden has vanished from the scene but it's still dangerous and uh, we'll have to see what happens to the rest of ukraine But you've just, you've just hit on a very important point that all, all the people viewing this should keep in mind. If you're a Russian right now and you look at the situation, you've taken, contrary to what the mainstream media says, comparatively few casualties. I mean, you have an exchange rate of about one Russian killed for every seven Ukrainians killed. So that, that's a pretty favorable ratio. Nobody likes to lose anybody in war, but that's a good position to be in. Just as Ukraine is now scraping the bottom of the barrel, running out of manpower, they're actually dragging back about 30 to 35,000 Ukrainians training in Germany, Canada, the United States, the Czech Republic, other places back to Ukraine to become the foundation for this so-called counteroffensive that they want to, uh, you know, execute. And the rest of them though, unfortunately are just being uh, hang, shanghaied into the, into the military. You know, you talk about a lot of young boys, a lot of old men and so forth. Russia's in a different position. Russia's stronger than ever. Russia is actually peaking in its capability. If you look at its forces, they've, they've really learned a great deal over the last year plus. In other words, if we look at the initial uh, Russian forces that went in, like any army that has not seen action for a very long time, uh, they made mistakes. But they learn from those mistakes. And there's a great report out from the Royal United Services Institute. It it still has stupid things in it about the Russians lacking initiative and all that. But brush that aside and just look at what they talk about in terms of adaptation and innovation. And you see that the Russians have really produced a very, very fine force and they're better now than they've ever been and they're larger now than they've ever been. And they have more modern equipment, more experience. So when, when they are finally released and allowed to execute, uh, and I think they're waiting for the Ukrainians to expel, you know, sort of exhaust the last forces at their disposal on another pointless counterattack. Once that happens, you know, they're in the driver's seat. So why would they sit idly by and allow us to intervene or even worse Bother negotiate with us. You know, the Politico article that came out over the weekend said that <clears throat> behind the scenes in Washington, the Biden administration, White House, State Department, people are, are now talking about a frozen conflict as the best outcome. And think about that. This, th- these are people in Washington who want to turn Ukraine into Korea, create a DMZ. And of course, then they want to park their forces in western Ukraine, on the other side of the Dnieper River, staring at the, at the Russians. Or better yet, if the Russians would accept such a thing, they'll, they'll cross the river up in northern Ukraine and sit there. Russians will never accept that. It's out of the question. They have been fighting to demilitarize Ukraine, eliminate the armed forces there that threaten them. And then secondly, they want this place to be neutral. So the idea that they, that these people at the top could look forward to some sort of, uh, Korea-like division of Ukraine and that they might be satisfied with that is, is a manifestation of how utterly uninformed and ridiculous they are. It's, it just makes no sense. They're, they're not listening to the Russians. They're not acknowledging reality.
0: Well, they're, they're still trying to push this narrative that this was an unprovoked attack versus uh, a decade of building up and provoking Putin to the point where he felt like my only option is to create this buffer zone. Uh, and unfortunately Ukraine, uh, has, you know, has to become that, that buffer zone. Um, let, let's move on to, uh, Bakhmut for a minute. Um, Russia says Bakhmut has fallen. Uh, Zelensky says, no, it hasn't. We still have soldiers in the area fighting and until we run out of bodies uh this area is not taken uh, taken um how does the 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 battle for bakhmut <clears throat> show uh how military strategies and goals can change over time and in your opinion uh has bakhmut fallen into the hands of russia
1: well bakhmut 90% of it has been in russian hands now for months It's only this small sliver of land on the very edge that remained in uh, Ukrainian hands. And they occupied some concrete reinforced buildings, very large, sort of high-rise-like buildings. And the Russians were very reluctant to destroy them because they had information that there were Russian civilians in the basements. We have to understand that you're operating in a part of Ukraine where the population is really Russian. Now, they may have been Ukrainian citizens, but of course, Ukrainians treated them badly didn't allow them to speak their language, have their schools, worship as they saw fit. They did not have equal rights before the law. They were an oppressed minority. And and every time someone that was Russian would complain, look, I'm a Ukrainian citizen. I'm happy to do whatever, just give me my equal rights. They said, well, there's there's a country. It's called Russia. You can leave here and go there. So the Russians did not want to kill large numbers of Russian civilians in eastern Ukraine. That slows everything down. It has slowed everything down from the beginning. People don't get it. That's That's been a major uh, constraint on the conduct of Russian military operations. Secondly, they then saw virtue in necessity to some extent. Remember, Surovikin comes in. He's a, from the Aerospace Forces. He takes over the theater uh, in the fall, completely changes the chain of command, streamlines it, creates unity of command. And he decides that as long as the Russians are building up their forces for future operations against Ukrainians, that he's going to run a, 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 a now what I would call a relatively elastic defense, uh, an economy of force operation. In other words, to use minimal force to maintain control of the areas that the Russians have, while at the same time uh, enticing the Ukrainians in to fight, inviting them in essentially to attack Bakhmut suddenly became very attractive to him. <clears throat> we now know from what Mr. Pogosian has said and other Russian sources have said that he deliberately used Bakhmut as sort of a red flag for the Ukrainian bull and kept those roads open and the opportunity for Ukrainians to reinforce it. <clears throat> now, the, the, we see a lot of evidence that upwards of 50,000 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in and around Bakhmut. That's a huge number of people. We don't, you know, we know at least that many were wounded. And <clears throat> the bad news with a lot of the Ukrainian wounded is that they never returned to duty. So just, you know, the Russians have been pretty good at getting somewhere around 70 to 80% <clears throat> of their soldiers back to the front lines after a couple of months of recuperation. Ukrainians have been unable to do that for a whole range of reasons. So the losses were really staggering. And I think. It is not an exaggeration to suggest that Bakhmut really is the graveyard of the Ukrainian army. And Zelensky's obsession with Bakhmut is on par with Hitler's obsession with Stalingrad. And what people don't understand is that the Germans didn't have to have or occupy or control Stalingrad. Long before the Sixth Army even arrived on the Volga River, the only thing of value in Stalingrad was an aircraft factory. A place where the Russians were literally building fighters. That was destroyed by the German air force. There was really no reason to, you know, over, overreach with your forces and go that far east. But then Hitler did it. He, and he was sort of attracted to this. Well, it's called Stalingrad. <clears throat> so this is a kind of strategic grudge match with uh, Stalin and Stalin, you know, said, we're not leaving Stalingrad and fed more and more and more troops in there of course the difference was that he could afford a million casualties the germans could not so the bottom line is zelensky has treated Bakhmut in the same way it becomes the symbol of ukrainian resistance and i think we are probably equally guilty of encouraging him to do that and instead of being a symbol of resistance it was just a sponge for blood and that's why you know i think in retrospect two, three, four years from now, people will look back on this war and they will say, well, Bakhmut was a huge turning point because the Ukrainians couldn't replace their losses. They couldn't replace all the equipment losses. And the Russians took very few casualties and lost almost no equipment. The outcome was a catastrophe for Ukraine. And I think that's pretty clear. But, of course, the mainstream media has its script. They're going to continue to read from it. They're not going to tell you the truth. And until you have, uh, i I really say this all the time and it's depressing to me, but I guess until you have Russian forces on the west side of the Dnieper and they overrun Odessa and they they move north and take Kharkov, people will finally, finally recognize my, my goodness, you know, what happened to the great victory? What happened to the inevitable Ukrainian success story? Then maybe people will wise up. Yeah. I do.
0: The, uh, yeah, Bakhmut you know, in the beginning was like a beacon of hope. This this will decide the war and and then as they began to lose <coughs> the top military in the United States began to say, Oh, this is just one of many cities, one of many battles, uh, but as you say, it, it it's it's stopped being a symbol of hope and has become a, a sponge for blood.